Join me in Romans chapter 5. Romans 5, this morning we continue in our series through Paul's letter to the Romans, and we come to Romans chapter 5. This morning we will be looking at verses 1 through 5. If you want to follow along in the Blue ESV Bible, that is page 942. Title of our sermon this morning is The Grace in Which We Stand. And our keywords for our worshipers and training are grace, rejoice, and suffering. I think most of us are probably familiar with John Bunyan, the 17th century author of The Pilgrim's Progress, which is a favorite around here, is often cited by us. But beyond Pilgrim's Progress, though, many people are unaware of Bunyan's life and the circumstances surrounding a lot of what he wrote Bunyan was born into a poor and illiterate family in 1628. He was the first person in his family to learn how to read and write, and write he surely did, with almost 60 published works by the end of his 60 years of life. That's quite impressive. Now, the Bunyan family was not religious, and so neither was John growing up, at least in the beginning. During his early years… Bunyan was known as a rebellious youth who caused a great deal of trouble throughout the community. Later in life, he would say, describing himself as a child, he said, I had few equals, especially considering my years, for cursing, swearing, lying, and blaspheming the holy name of God. Now, through a series of tragic and miraculous events in Bunyan's life, including the death of his mother and his sister and his own near-death encounter while he was serving in the army, Bunyan's attitude toward God changed dramatically. God used a number of incidents to cause John Bunyan to come to saving faith, the foremost being his marriage to a devout Puritan woman with whom he had four children. After his conversion, Bunyan became involved as a a member and then a deacon of the Bedford Church, and it was there that his love for God, his love for the Scriptures, his love for preaching grew and grew. But it was also a time where he faced his first significant trial as a Christian. His wife died suddenly. He was left with four children to care for all on his own. And soon after, he was able to remarry a young woman named Elizabeth, who proved to be a very good mate to John Bunyan and a godly mother for the four children. Now, in England at the time, Parliament was persecuting the Puritans because of their defiance to the Anglican church and its authority. And so, they were banned from preaching. And if they were caught preaching, they were sent to prison. Well, John Bunyan continued to preach to the people of Bedford, And on November 12, 1660, his prayer time was interrupted by the local magistrates arriving to arrest him. He was told that he could either stop preaching or he could go to jail, and so he went to jail. Now, at the time, Elizabeth was pregnant, and having heard the news of her husband's arrest, she was so grieved that she went into early labor and the child died. Soon after, Bunyan was found guilty. He was indicted by the accusation that he was, quote, devilishly and perniciously abstaining from coming to an Anglican church to hear divine service and for being a common upholder of several unlawful meetings 
and conventicles to the great disturbance and distraction of the good subjects of this kingdom, contrary to the laws of our sovereign Lord and King. And so with that, John Bunyan began a 12-year sentence in prison. John wrote of this time, saying, The parting with my wife and poor children hath oft been to me in this place as the pulling the flesh from my bones. Also, because I should have often brought to my mind the many hardships, miseries, and wants that my poor family was like to meet with, should I be taken from them, especially my poor blind child, Mary, who lay nearer to my heart than all I had besides. Oh, the thoughts of the hardships I thought my blind one might go under would break my heart to pieces. John Bunyan wrote many prison meditations during his time, and as he reflected on the growth of his faith in prison during these hardships, he wrote this poem. He wrote, I am, in, I am indeed in prison now, in body but my mind is free to study Christ, and how unto me he is kind. For though men keep my outward man within their locks and bars, yet by the faith of Christ I can mount higher than the stars. Their fetters cannot spirits tame, nor tie up God from me. My faith and hope they cannot lame. Above them I shall be. You see, during this time, Bunyan not only grieved, not only hurt, not only suffered, but he wrote about how his understanding of Scripture was deepened and how his soul was awakened to God's Word like it never had been before. He said, I never had in all my life so great an inlet into the Word of God as now. Those Scriptures that I saw nothing in before are made in this place and state to shine upon me. Sometimes when I have been in the savor of them, I have been able to laugh at destruction and to fear neither the horse nor his rider. I have had sweet sights of the forgiveness of my sins in this place and of my being with Jesus in another world. He found joy in the midst of suffering. Bunyan wrote a book called Advice to Sufferers, and there he wrote one of my favorite lines in all of literature. He said, it is said that in some countries trees will grow, but will bear no fruit, because there is no winter there. The brutal forces of harsh winters, suffering the pounding against the trees of faith, bring about a plentiful harvest of fruit in due season. Suffering is a necessary part of this life. And as we continue to look at Paul's letter to the Romans, we arrive at chapter 5 and we're venturing into a few of the most well-known, the most oft-preached verses in the Bible in verses 1 through 11. By now, Paul has completed this masterful defense of the doctrine of justification by faith alone. He's addressed the objections to the doctrine. He provides a positive defense of the doctrine. And now he transitions his argument to the implications of justification by faith for all who believe. And he shows us that by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ, those who are justified have everlasting unbreakable peace with God and are made able to persevere in hope in this life, even through many dangerous toils and snares. And we rejoice in the hope of a future glorification. 
Chapter 5 marks the beginning of what I believe to be the four most important chapters in all the Bible, Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8. And so now it's here at the beginning of chapter 5 that Paul begins to show us how someone like John Bunyan can affirm what he affirmed, how he could believe what he believed in the midst of his suffering. How could John Bunyan say that the pain of parting with his wife and children is as pulling the flesh from his bones and simultaneously find hope in being a tree in the midst of a harsh winter that will bear fruit in due season. This is a remarkable passage of Scripture. It's almost hymn-like as it's written. And notice as we read, Paul is writing with absolute confidence. He's not laying out a case or an argument as he was so much before. Rather, now he's making confident assertions. He lays out and he even, he even writes them in the first person plural. In other words, he's telling us that this is his experience just as much as it is our experience. This is the experience of a believer. Not a maybe, not a should be, not a hope it is, but rather this is a believer who has the experience of walking in faithful communion with God. Every Christian can deepen his or her optimism and capacity for joy by understanding the benefits of our justification as they're given by Paul here in these 11 verses. And so if we ever find ourselves having the flesh pulled from our bones, we can rest higher than the circumstances. We can find our joy in the midst of our suffering because of the grace in which we stand. So let's read beginning in verse 1 through verse 5 of Romans chapter 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Now, you've all been taught how to read your Bibles, so the first thing that stood out to you right there, Paul's transitional, therefore, in verse 1. And he pulls us back and he connects us to all of his previous argument for justification by faith. Now, you're beginning to see how the letter is Paul's stacked argument. It's one layer upon another upon another. And now when he writes, therefore, he's doing this just so we understand and we can, we can be brought along in this argument. We've followed his logic thus far, and he assumes we're still with him, and he's, he's sort of wrapping this into the next place he wants to go. And so, so far, he's provided this exhaustive evidence of man's sinfulness, of man's great need of the gospel for both Jew and Gentile. And he showed us that the law of God is transgressed by all men, even though it is written on their hearts. And so that leaves all of us without excuse and in need of a righteousness outside of ourselves. 
We need the righteousness of another. If we're to ever have hope of standing justified before our God. And then Paul went on to provide Old Testament confirmation. Remember in chapter 4, through the example of Abraham, that the doctrine of justification by faith is not a novel thing. We see it all throughout Scripture. It has always stood as the single means by which God reconciles sinful men to Himself through the person and work of Jesus Christ, who is the object and originator of our faith. And then last time, we saw that Paul concluded chapter 4 by identifying once more that Jesus Christ is the one who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. That's the argument thus far in summary. And so when we get to chapter 5, while Paul continues to move his argument forward, he does so here by sort of giving us a summary of his message so far. He's gone through, this is who you are, this is who God is, this is what God has done, this is how you can be right with God, and now this is what happens as a result of what God has done for undeserving you. This is where he's headed now. And so he goes to great lengths in all that he writes to get us to a place where where we really engage our minds as we explore the truth of what he's laying out. Now, quite unfortunate, especially in our day, is a heavy emphasis that is often placed primarily on feelings and on sentimentality in our spiritual lives. Now, please don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying feelings or having them, or engaging them are bad or wrong. It's not a bad thing. They're natural. They're given to us by God for a specific purpose. But something Paul is doing here is really helping us to not, first and foremost, look a lot at our feelings, because if we're focused on our feelings, we will be drawn away from the things that don't make us feel good, even though they're the things that we might very much need. Like Paul is going to show us in our text about suffering. Right, if we, if we just look at our feelings and we, we base everything we do on our feelings, when it comes to something like suffering, we're not going to see it for what it is and for what it's intended to be, but rather we'll do everything we can to simply get away from it as quickly as possible. And that may not be the right response. And so Paul's constant mantra as he writes is essentially, think, use your mind because it is through the mind that your life will be transformed. The secret to holiness lies in the mind, not ultimately in your feelings. And this is the very thing we will see in chapter 12. Remember, that's where Paul calls us to not renew or trust our feelings, but to renew our minds. And when our minds are renewed, everything else begins to fall in place. When the truth of the gospel is clear in our minds, It touches our affections, and then it transforms our hearts, and that is where our feelings become something more tolerable. The truth of the gospel changes all of us, how we will, how we live, and so undoubtedly and unavoidably it changes how we feel and how we think about how we feel. So we have to remember, throughout this letter, Paul is writing the way he is writing for this purpose, namely to get us to think first and foremost. 
using our minds. So what are we thinking about? Well, Paul continues to help us pursue an understanding of justification. What is justification? He's shown us it is a total pardon. But what have we seen? It is a total pardon, not just of the guilt of our past, but also all of our guilt in the future. This is what made the Jews so nervous about Paul's preaching, right? They couldn't handle that Paul doesn't say, you're justified by faith now and all of your past sins are forgiven, but if you, if you want to make it to heaven, you'll have to amass more good works as you go along in your life. You have to keep it together. That's what they wanted to hear Paul say. That's how you keep people in line. But Paul shows us that we are justified. And the moment we are justified, it is total in God's sight. And it is by faith in Jesus Christ alone. And the faith we have so unites us to Christ that the idea that we would be justified by faith and then just go on sinning to our heart's content because we knew we were safe does not match up with what happens in justification. It's a total transformation. And as Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, the the old man, the old woman has passed away. Behold, the new man, the new woman has, has come and walks in the newness of life. And so in the newness of life, our heart's desire isn't what the Jews assumed it would be, that we would just continue to walk in sin, but we desire to walk faithfully in obedience to God because... Remember what Paul showed us in chapter 4 and verse 20. It gives glory to God. We want to glorify God. That's the desire of a believer. We don't, we don't do it well, but that's our desire. And when we take hold of Christ by faith, our greatest aspiration is to bring glory to our God. And so you see, Paul goes to great pains to show us that we cannot be any more justified than we are right now. Ever. Sanctified? Yes. Changed? Yes. Transformed? Yes. Made more holy? Yes. Justified? Not a chance. Justification is total. It is all-encompassing of your entire person for all eternity. There is nothing you can do to add to it, and in fact, if you try to add to it, you are going to take away from it and make it something less than what it is. Justification is total. It is a complete work of God, and the reason it is total is because it is final. As we trust in Christ, His righteousness is granted to us, and the Father pronounces His verdict. That's what makes it so glorious. Jesus, of course, didn't need to do anything for Himself as the Son of God. He did all that He did for us. Standing in our place from the moment He was conceived to the moment when He was glorified and even still stands in our place today before the Father as our substitute, as our representative, as our mediator. And the only righteousness in which we can be clothed in is the perfect, final righteousness of Jesus Christ. So all of this is what Paul has in mind as he's writing. This is my introduction, by the way. (laughs) 
And now he's, he's summarizing. He's giving more weight to his argument. And he's elevating the gospel in our minds even more as we get to verse 1 and that word, therefore. Therefore. Since all of this is true, how does he say it? Therefore, since you have been justified by faith. We're going to look more specifically at three things, but there's a lot here. I'm probably going to mess up our entire preaching schedule in the next few weeks. Sorry, Christina. We'll see. But I haven't hit my first point yet, so there you go. Now, notice... Notice Paul's confidence here, though. I just want to point this out before we push on. Notice his confidence. Therefore, since you have been justified by faith. It's an assured statement, isn't it? There's no question. There's not, there's not if you've been justified by faith, but rather an absolute assurance that this is something that has happened to those who have come to Christ by faith. And so now we see the implications and he shows us why it is so important for us to always remember this is how we should think. I have been justified by faith, therefore this is what my life will look like. And so he shows us why it is so important for us to remember how we should think, even though, and this is the really important part of this, even though the circumstances of our lives may not feel like what we know is true from God's Word. So, first thing, verse 1, since you have been justified by faith, you are at peace with God. What Paul is doing now is is laying out the benefits of our justification. And the first one is peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, whether we know what it is or not, this is the longing of every human heart. It is the pursuit that is a universal human obsession. It is a striving for peace. So often we hear people talk about being happy or wanting to be happy or wanting to to feel happy or doing whatever makes them happy, but what they're searching for is peace. And, And more specifically, the longing is for peace with God. Now, we we hear about peace all the time too, don't we? International peace, industrial peace, domestic peace, whatever the case, there is a human longing for peace but we don't experience it here in this life, in the circumstances of this life. It all seems elusive. It seems like a dream, that it could never be a reality that we would live at peace. But Paul tells us that this isn't something that you have to go out and get. It's not something that you have to go out and find, but rather is a reality of the Christian life. You have the peace that matters most Above all other peace, you, Christian, are at peace with God. You are at peace with your Creator. You are at peace with the judge of all the universe. And that's not going to change. Being reconciled to God, being at peace with God, 
is the first blessing of our justification. And this peace has become ours through the life, through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, who was both delivered to death and raised from death in order to make it all possible. This is the heart of the peace that the the prophets foretold as the supreme blessing of the coming Christ into the world. The peace of the kingdom of God inaugurated by Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace. But notice, this peace isn't just a future reality. It's very much future, but it's not just future. We have peace with God now. We have a perfect possession that has resulted in all hostilities between us and God ceasing. This was all, of course, initiated by God, even though we are the ones who are the offenders. He's the offended party, but He initiated the peace. And so now we have to be clear about what we're saying. Paul is not writing primarily about a state of inner tranquility. That's not what he means by this. Again, remember, this is not primarily about how you feel. He's dealing with peace externally and objectively. In other words, we're at peace with God. We no longer exist under His wrath. In the same way you could think of maybe two nations being at peace with one another, not going to war. That's the kind of peace we're talking about. We don't have to remove the idea that we can experience inner peace, the feeling of peace. We can have internal felt peace when we know we are at peace with God. It's a joyful experience as we walk in communion with God. But this is not the final and ultimate thrust of what Paul is saying because he's a realist. He knows that you don't always feel like you're at peace with God. Some days, maybe even weeks, maybe even months, it feels like everything could just come to an end. Sometimes it feels like everything in this world is against you, and so that surely that must include God. It feels like the, sco- the sky is falling. It feels like the walls are closing in. It feels like you can't think. You can't breathe. You can't comprehend. You can't reason. You can't get out of bed. You can't plan your day. You can't put two thoughts together. So how is that any kind of peace? Well, it's not. <laughs> That's why we have to remember this isn't about how we feel because we're complex creatures in a fallen world, and sometimes all of this doesn't make sense, and it sure doesn't feel good. If we based our understanding of how things are going between us and God on our feelings, not a single one of us would ever have any bit of confidence that we are no longer at enmity with God. And you know, I I think so often why we struggle with assurance and why I hear from Christians that they think that God is angry with them or disappointed in them is because we tend to go to our feelings to express our reality. So it's important that we have fixed firmly in our minds that this peace with God exists between us and God through our Lord Jesus Christ, and since that is the case, it is unbreakable no matter how I feel today. 
Christ was offered up as a sacrifice that satisfied the wrath of God and His work has made a way of ending all hostility between God and man. And so a new relationship is marked by peace for all who are justified for all eternity. And so what is the result? No longer enemies of God, but because of His love, because of His initiative, We are sons and daughters and can know that the weapons of war are laid down, which is the foundation for a peace which surpasses all understanding. But he goes on with more. Look at what else he shows us in verse 2. He shows us that since you have been justified by faith, you have access to grace to rejoice in hope. This is the next benefit of our justification. Paul shows us that we have hope, and the object of hope is the glory of God being revealed. So we are justified by faith, whereby we receive the forgiveness of sins in this present life, and so we have hope, which is to anticipate the glory that is to be revealed to us. Now, it's always important to remember that biblical hope is not the same kind of hope that we often think of or talk about. It's not like saying, I hope it doesn't rain this afternoon, or I hope I get a new pair of shoes for my birthday. Always a good gift for me, by the way. (laughs) No, a, a biblical hope, a biblical hope is an acknowledgment of that which God has promised as being as good as fulfilled. It's looking forward to that which is as good as accomplished already, but is not yet to be experienced. It will be experienced in the future. It's as good as done. You can bank on it. So, imagine it this way. Imagine being yourself a poor beggar. But as that beggar, you have a reliable witness, a letter, a sealed promise from the crown of an empire across the ocean. And He has promised you that you will have safe navigation even though there are many trials along the way. When you take on that voyage, you will make it to the other side. And when you get there, you are given all of the kingdom. Now, when you undertake the voyage, you have to keep on the same beggar's clothing until you reach the new country. So how will you be affected by that? Well, of course, at some point you will be affected in your thinking as though you were already dressed in a purple robe. Even though right now you may be wearing torn, ratty, tattered, stinking clothes as a beggar, you know what's coming. You know what's there. And you can imagine yourself dressed as royalty. How would you be affected knowing that safe passage across the ocean was promised? Well, even though the waves may be crashing in and the boat being tossed to and fro and everyone else hiding for safety, you could stand confidently knowing that you will make it. And you see, dear brothers and sisters, the glory of God was promised with much more certainty to us than any earthly crown can promise. And so while we may live for a time in this world as poor beggars, while we may think that traversing the rough seas of day-to-day life in this world will have a tragic end. We have access by faith to the grace upon which we stand. 
and the glory that is promised is not a land far off across the ocean, far away that we cannot reach, but rather it is ours so clearly and so assuredly that it is no different than if we were inheriting all of it right here today. Literally, Paul writes, it is through Christ that we have obtained our introduction into the grace in which we have taken our stand and find our promise fulfilled. We have a privileged position of acceptance by God, so nothing can harm us everlastingly. We're going to make it, brothers and sisters. If we are in Christ, we're going to make it. Now, notice Paul writes first that we have obtained access. We've obtained an introduction. We were unfit to enter, but we've been brought in. And to where does that lead? Paul tells us that we take a firm stance in or on the grace to which we have been introduced. But let's take it even further because our access to God is not simply that we've met Him. No, we enjoy a relationship that is far greater than a periodic approach to the throne or an occasional audience with the king. We have the privilege of living in the temple and in the king's palace. In other words, our relationship with God, our hope into which this justification has brought us is not sporadic, it's not periodic, but it is continuous, and it is not precarious, it is absolutely secure forever. And so we do not fall in and out of God's grace. We're not in a relationship with God that ebbs and flows based on our day. He loves me, He loves me not. It's not based on how we feel. It's not based on how much we do or don't do. No, we stand in the grace of God everlastingly, and nothing can separate us from the love of God. This is why our hope is not an uncertain hope. This is a joyful, confident expectation that is entirely bound up in the promises of God as we looked at when we considered what true faith is and we saw that in Abraham. And so what is the object of our hope? The glory of God. The glory of God. Now, of course, we know the glory of God is being continuously revealed in the heavens and the earth. Already it's been uniquely made manifest in the Lord Jesus Christ, the incarnate Word of God, and most notably in His death and His resurrection. But one day, one day, the curtain will be raised and the glory of God will be fully revealed. The Lord Jesus will appear with great power and glory, and we will not only see His glory, but we will be changed, because to see His glory is to transform and to glorify His own people. And then all the redeemed of the earth who were created to be in the image and the glory of God, but now through sin fall short of the glory of God, will again and in full measure share in this everlasting glory. In fact, to go even a step further, even this groaning creation will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. The renewed universe will be covered with the glory of its Creator. 
This and, and so much more is what the Bible's addressing when it refers to the glory of God, which is the object of our hope. That one day the full glory of God will be revealed and I and you glorified with Him. No more sin, no more suffering. And yet we can exalt in that and our vision for future glory is this powerful stimulus to live by faith here and now, is it not? But we still have to live in this world. It's still hard. And so we have to look to our other benefits of justification. And Paul shows us in verses 3 through 5, since you have been justified by faith, every circumstance of life is for your benefit. Every circumstance of your life is for your benefit. Now we're going to have to come back to this text next week, it appears, but we can get started today. We'll break it down in more detail next Sunday, Lord willing. But let's take the bigger picture. How does a John Bunyan get to a place where he can say that his time in prison, his 12 years away from his family, were so painful, it was as if his skin was being ripped from his bones. How can he look at all of that and experience that and say, ultimately, it was for his good? Let me tell you, Bunyan would have been the first to admit that it wasn't because he found any kind of pleasure in his circumstances. It wasn't because he was really excited about all that was going on in that moment. There were some painful, tired hungry, sad, gut-wrenching nights and days throughout those 12 years, guaranteed. But he persevered because of God's Word, because of God's truth, because of God's promises. That's what he said. And this is exactly where Paul is pointing us. We are a people, Paul writes, that can rejoice in our suffering. It sounds insane, doesn't it? Rejoice in our suffering. We can rejoice in our sufferings, though. Why? Because we know what comes as a result. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us, and we have His Word. It is as good as accomplished. And so, as we sang earlier, cisterns be broken, creatures all fail, the word he has spoken will surely prevail. That was John Bunyan's hope. That is our only hope in the midst of our own suffering, that God's word is true despite my circumstances. Now, again, we'll get into the details of this building statement of Paul. He says, suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope, hope does not put us to shame, so much there. There are so many multiple layers. We're going to look at each of them. But for the remainder of our time this morning, I just want to address this as honestly as I can because I think we have a tendency as Christians to read something like this and just assume, well, this is how it is. And if I'm not feeling this, if I can't look at my suffering currently or whatever it is and rejoice in it, if I'm not seeing my experience in this way, then either I'm a lousy Christian, I'm a lazy Christian, or maybe I'm not a Christian at all. It's really easy to get there. It's really easy to get there in your thinking. I'm not immune to those thoughts myself in any way. 
I, like you, struggle with those thoughts often. My immediate response to difficult circumstances of life is not always to rejoice in knowing all that God is using in my circumstances to produce within me for His glory. I have a lot of different responses to trials and to hardships and to suffering, but I don't want to be a liar and tell you that my most common response is to immediately rejoice. It's not. And that's just it for us, isn't it? We don't need to pretend that we have all of this put together because one of the things that God is doing through our trials and through our suffering is teaching us that, you know, this time my suffering I may respond to very poorly. But on the other side, God has taught us something, that the next time I face something, that maybe I turn more readily to Him, that maybe I trust more confidently in His Word, that maybe I have a more sure grasp on His promises that are true. Okay, so you face a trial tomorrow, and you just blame everything and everyone, your spouse, your children, your boss, your broke-down car, and on and on and on. But you never stop to think, I wonder what God is teaching me. What are you going to do? What does it mean? What does it mean? Does it mean that you've fallen out of favor with God because you didn't instantly think of Him in the midst of your suffering? Do you really assume that He sent His Son to die for you and that He knows all things throughout all eternity, but He's just going to leave you to yourself and abandon you the first time you forget to think about how God loves you? That doesn't square with Scripture, does it? That's pretty cold and cruel. Isn't this our God who said, I will never leave you or forsake you? Isn't that Him? Maybe it means that you handled it poorly, and so now you have six months of penance. And so your circumstances, they won't change because God is chastising you for your poor response. Six months, nothing but trials, nothing but suffering. You should have chosen your words and your actions more carefully. Is that our God? Remember, This is the same God who exhorts fathers to not stir our children up to anger, but rather to be tender-hearted, patient, kind, and loving like He is. So what is it? Do you remember last time I said, you can be a person who has greater faith than anyone else in this world, or you can be hanging on to faith by a rope as thin as a frog's hair, to use a good southern vernacular there. But guess what? We're going to the same heaven to worship together the very same Christ. Why? Because our standing before God is not based on the strength of our feelings or the acceptability of our response to our circumstances but it is all by God's grace alone that we are justified, even though we may at times live and act and talk in ways that reveal a heart that is not trusting in the promises of God. Maybe you're drowning in today's circumstances, but we have the promise of justification. We are saved by God's grace through faith, apart from anything we have done or can do. Listen, brothers and sisters, we're all going to have terrible days. 
You're going to have terrible weeks. You might have terrible months. I hate to break it to you. If that's not your experience, it's coming. Life in this world is really, really, really tough, and sometimes it's downright painful and agonizing, but it doesn't even have to be without hope because we know, not based on how we feel, not based on the current circumstances and how all of that's looking, but by the promises of God, we can have hope that everything the Lord has ordained is ultimately for our benefit, and so we may have to hang in there for a little while but it'll work out. Not in a sentimental way, and not even saying that our circumstances will change here and now, but we will be glorified. Now, that doesn't mean we sit back and give up and just wait to die and go to heaven. It does mean that the Lord made you, He knows you, He understands you better than you understand yourself, and He knows exactly what you need to sanctify you and make you more into what He desires you to be, knowing all along that you're still in this epic battle on this earth between the world, the flesh, and the devil. You're not always going to get it right, so get it out of your head. (laughs) You're not going to get it all right, but the Lord is your loving, tender Father and will patiently walk with you through all of it. Do you know that, God? In the midst of your greatest trials in life, on the worst days of your life, do you know this God? Do you look to Him? Do you cry out to Him? You can. He invites you to do just that. It is through the Lord Jesus Christ who is sent into this world to live a perfect life, to die a sinner's death on the cross that my sins could be placed upon Him and punished, that His righteousness could be given to me, that I have a right standing before the Father. Jesus Christ was raised from the dead to conquer sin, to conquer death, to conquer ultimately all of our bad days and weeks and months. And He invites you by faith to come to Him by His grace as He draws you to Himself, that you would cry out, that you would rest in Him, that you would trust in Him. And brothers and sisters, since you have been justified by faith, you are at peace with God. You have access to grace and rejoice in hope, and every circumstance in your life is for your benefit. And so may God help us to believe and rest in these great, powerful truths for our good and for His glory. Amen.